we um, uh, uh, reminded ourselves and were, and were to, yeah, go get that money. Go on, do, do that. I'm not praying again over it. Uh, 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 last week in Colossians in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1, we, 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 we met the Apostle Paul in his relationship to the Colossians and we remembered that though he was not the apostle that planted the church, though he was not the missionary that went to Colossae, he was the missionary that went to Ephesus and Epaphras was saved under his ministry and Epaphras went to Colossae and Hierapolis and to Laodicea and he planted those churches. But, but Paul needed to establish the relationships right before he starts to address the sneaking, circling sharks of false teaching around this church. So he established them as true saints in the Lord Jesus Christ and for no other reason than they, that they are in Jesus Christ. He established himself as authoritative, theological, ecclesiastical authority as the apostle, Paul. And then he reminded them that God is our Father who gives us grace and peace. And on the back of that, now he is uh, uh, starting to turn from his, his simple, simple speaking to them. And it's almost as if he's speaking to God and we're listening in on it. He's, he's telling them the sorts of things he prays about. I love these portions of Scripture. It's so helpful in, 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 my, in my, my own life to, to, as we struggle through prayer and what to pray and how to pray, we're given these gracious glimpses by God's Holy Spirit into the prayer life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, John 17, what a glorious thing that we have, a whole chapter. It's like walking into the holy place where the Son is praying as mediator to the Father. And we also get these portions in, in, in Paul's, Paul's letters he, 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 uh, where he, he tells them what he prays for. And this is one of them. Uh, verse 3 to verse 8 is where we're going to be uh, tonight in chapter 1. I actually need to go and find my place. <clears throat> in Colossians chapter 1. Hear now the word of the true and living God. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, for he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word in our midst this evening. So here we're going to go from Paul's establishing the relationship between the Colossian church and him, and as he started to set up guards for the church away from the heretics, now he's going to start telling us what he thanks the Father for. And he's going to thank the Father for, for the work that the gospel does in the Colossian church. We're going to see him thank the Father for, for the work that the gospel is doing in the whole world. And of course, then he's going to, he's going to speak of really what the gospel is in its definition. <clears throat> so we'll see how the gospel transforms the Colossians, how the gospel conquers the world, and of course, how the gospel reveals God's true grace. So look first in verse 3. This is, uh, this is classic Apostle Paul. He always says a brief g'day, establishes relationships, and then goes into a thanksgiving portion. And he does that, the same thing here. Uh, in all of his letters, basically, I think, other than Galatians, he starts out that way. 
here's me, I'm Paul, I'm with these people writing to you in this city, blessed to you. We give thanks because I've heard all of this stuff. The only exception is the book of Galatians, and you know why. It's because he's fuming and he's angry and he doesn't even have time to start thinking of what's positive. He starts writing to tell the heretics to chop their, their parts off. That's, that's Paul in Galatians. But we're not in Galatians. We'll get there. I love to preach Galatians, but we're in, we're in Colossians. And he sees much in this church that he's never been to. He hears much that is uh, worth thanking God for. I, I want to point out that in verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And this is because he sees all these positive things. But before we even get there, Paul gives us a, a, a great paradigm through which to commend and, and acknowledge the, the, the good things that God is doing in one another's life. You'll note that in his, his letters, he never once says, I see your faith, I see your love, I see your gift, I see your zeal. Congratulations. You go, you. Look at you guys. How good are you? Never. What he does is, he places it rightly. He says, I'm seeing good things. Praise God. Because who's to thank for the good that is in your life? God. What's your part? Well, who's to thank for the stuff-ups, the mistakes, the sins, the errors in your life? Yeah, that one you get credit for. But Paul gives us a framework to give the right credit where it is due. He sees good things and he says, I praise God for this, for this church plant that he has not even had a hand in doing. He, he sent out the, the preacher, he sent out Epaphras, but here he is praising the Lord God for what God has done without his immediate hand. Uh, therefore, he praises God and not them. Like, like Jonathan Edwards says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. But so it also is in the rest of our Christian life. Everything that's good, thank God for. Everything that was terrible, that's where your responsibility comes in. But he says here, I thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's four elements here that, we need to, that I want to drive into and pick up not just because I'm addicted to making long sermons out of small texts, but because in the context of Colossians, where we've seen last week the heresy circling them and their faithful brothers, Paul has said, so, so it's as if they're standing against it, but the, but the sneaking, the, 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 the corrupting influence of the false teaching has centered, as almost every heresy does, on the person and the work of Christ. I don't think... Almost any of the, the, the words in the, in the Pauline epistles in, in matters like this are ever incidental or ever accidental and, uh, and, and irrelevant. I think that he's intentionally given in this, in this initial prayer an elevated Christological statement because in every instance he is looking for opportunity to offend the heretics. I do this all of the time. I pray you do as well. I, I, I look for things that when, when I'm speaking to somebody who seems, and, and I was giving you some clues for how to spot a heretic last week. They're always the person who says, I love Jesus, you love Jesus, let's not talk more than that, come and join my group. Another clue is that, is, that, is that when you talk about the name, the work, the effect, the finished work, the accomplishment, the glory of Jesus Christ, they start getting a little antsy and go, yeah, 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 I know, finished justification, but remember, what about your work? You know, that's what our church really focuses on. And, and that's where the church has gone wrong and all this gray stuff. Or, or they start pushing. This is always the caveat. And, 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 and I've had this experience before with a guy who, um, uh, who, who, who just wanted to affirm to me he believed the normal, historical, 
evangelical Trinitarian doctrine, right? Father, Son, Spirit, nothing wrong with that. And I could tell something was off about him. He was weird. Weird people are usually heretics. It's really real easy, real easy click. Uh, and, and I'm like, no, I, I know this guy's wrong. And I just started pounding on the, on the glory, on the, on the exaltation, on the equality, equality, there you go, on the equality of the Son with the Father. And I could just t- see him, and finally he snapped. Yes, he's equal, but, but he's equal having come about after the Father, and the Father's primary, and that's why we need it. Boom, got him. That's what Paul's doing. He knows what will tick off the heretics. And then, and, and as the old saying goes, when you throw a rock in a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one who got hit. I throw out some, some, uh, some prophetic statement about the sin in the church. It's the pastor who sends me the email I know is guilty. It's when Paul just doesn't stop exalting Jesus. It's the good little church member who just says, yeah, great about Jesus, but what about the Spirit? You've got some error going on there. And he just, he just hits right even in this. It, it, it's in between two commas. I know you're going to tell me that shouldn't have been a main point of a sermon. You didn't preach your own sermons. Here, we'll make it a point. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Four points to pull out. That the Father has a decisive, definitive Son, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. We've said in verse 2, well, Paul said in verse 2, and you might say, Aren't, isn't God all of our Father? Right? He said grace and peace from God, our Father, right? We're all God's children. So Jesus is just like one of us. No, we are all God's children by adoption through Jesus. We are, we, we are his children by adoption. Jesus is his son by nature. In every sense of the word, he is the son, the, 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 the one who is, who is generated from the Father eternally. He is the son. So, so when he says that God, the God, is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's already a Christological statement. He is God, the Son, a member of the eternal Trinity as an eternal and unlimited Son. We're all sons in a secondary sense, through adoption, through grace, through forgiveness, secondarily. But he also then goes and calls him uh, 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 the, so he's the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, we read words in the New Testament and we just get used to them. We read words like Christ, and maybe you think that Christ is Jesus' second name. Tonight's the night for you to learn that's not true. Christ is a title. He was the Christ. Uh, the word literally means the anointed one, the set-apart one, the sanctified one, or sometimes in Isaiah, the, the holy one of Israel. It, 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 the, the, the Hebrew word was, was, was Messiah. So when we say Jesus Christ, what we're saying is Jesus, the Messiah from the Old Testament, the one in whom all of the purposes of God culminate, the person through whom all of the purposes of God are achieved. There's no such thing as a purpose of God that he's doing outside of Jesus Christ through his bride, the church. That's why he'll call him Christ, but he's also going to call him Lord. And we just hear, Lord, yeah, you know, he's the Lord of my heart. He's, he's, he's my Lord and power, whatever. Lord is a statement of authority. But having been exalted from his resurrection and to the right hand of the Father, he is ruling and reigning with all authority to every degree that he speaks to. And he speaks to every topic in every degree. Jesus is the authority over every element of truth and every element of life in God's created order. So he is the Son, he is Lord, he is Jesus, and he is Christ. He's Jesus. He's exalted Lord, 
He's the true son. He's the, the Old Testament Christ. He's all those things. He's also old mate Josh, son of Joseph, who lived in Nazareth. He is also the incarnate, truly human man whose name was Joshua, comes into, into English as Jesus. He's also that. Now, now, as you start looking at every historical heresy that has ever come up about Jesus or about other topics, but you trace it all the way back to Jesus, you find something going wrong with one of these points. Every Christological heresy will either not affirm that he is true eternal son, that he is true exalted sovereign Lord, that he is true human in every way like us, but without sin, or that he is in every sense the prophesied and the promised one from the Old Testament. You go wrong on any of those things, you have yourself a salvation issue. So Paul refers to him to refers to God as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what he commends now, so we've gotten through the fact that he's thankful to God for the saints. But what's he seeing in the saints? Or rather, what's he hearing from Epaphras while he's in he's in house arrest there in Rome? And he's hearing Epaphras tell him all about what's going on back at Colossae. And he's praising God for these two things. First of all, the faith that they have in Christ and the love that they have for all of the saints. When he says faith in Christ, he's again throwing in the language of in Christ in order to delimit and define what the faith is. People still, like they, they did back in the first century, they're still going to do it today. God looks at your heart as long as he sees some faith, some belief, some zeal, some, some, some hope in the good, some, some, some kind of faith, you decide what that's in or what that's about or what that looks like. That's not how God deals. The only commendable faith is that faith which is in Jesus Christ. All other faiths, yes, religion, every other belief, every other doctrinal stance, every other, every other resting on a promise of God that, that is outside of Christ is not a faith that is worth commending. It is faith in Christ. But again, let's come back to the context. Why would Paul be saying this? It is because the, the Colossians are hearing that faith is a great starting point. We're so glad that you have faith in Christ, but also, and, and more, more commendable is that you have faith that focuses on the second return of the Lord Jesus Christ through his angels and through, the, through these anointed people. No, no, no they're, they're trying to say, you know, I'm so glad that you have the type of faith that knows that we are the one true church and you're going to come and visit us and you're going to come away from all of the other false churches. No, I'm so glad that you have the faith that does works, which then get you saved. No, no. Faith is defined by nothing else than itself related to Christ. Faith plus anything, faith connected to anything other than Christ is not saving faith. Spurgeon, just to give a bit of a word picture here, Spurgeon used to say that, that faith is that conduit, uh, that pipe, that, that, that wire that connects you to Jesus Christ. In itself, it does nothing. A pipe is not able to bring forth fresh water. The only benefit of the pipe is that it connects you to the tank. A copper wire is able to produce and give no electricity. The only reason it is useful is because it connects the device to the energy source. And so it is with faith. Faith in itself is irrelevant, is, is useless, is powerless. But faith in Christ causes that salvation moment. It is faith in Christ. Now, let's, while we're here, let's define faith just a little bit. Uh, 
in the, in the Reformation days, 1500s, uh, the, the following generations, they were, they were still coming out of the Catholic Church, still, still fighting the Catholics' dogma and their doctrine. And what they would say is, is, of course, you have to believe in Jesus. You have to have faith. But faith is, while necessary, insufficient. Think of, think of oxygen with a fire. Is oxygen absolutely necessary for a fire? Yes. If you did your Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, you are, you'll know that's a yes. Is wood, is something to burn absolutely essential for a fire? Yes. Is it sufficient? No. You can't just have wood and therefore have fire. You can't just have oxygen and therefore have fire. So, so the Catholics would say faith is like wood in the fire. It's, it's so necessary. You can't be saved without it, but it's not enough. I mean, you also need the penance. You also need the works. You also need the, the grace given through the church. Then you get salvation. But the reformers said this, the one instrumental thing that you need to be entirely sufficient for passing into salvation through justification was faith. Faith is necessary and faith is sufficient. All you need is faith. But as the heresy went on, as the Catholics were pushing back, as the Reformation continued, they would, they would start to go, well, well James says, and, and Paul says, and the writer of the Hebrews says that faith, which produces nothing, is, is no true faith, is no saving faith. Like, like just about anybody can stand up and say, as long as they're a, a toddler, can stand up and say, I believe in Jesus. They're not saved. That's not enough. And the reformers said, that's, that's true. It's not enough to say that you have faith. And the Catholics would come back and say, so there you go. Faith's not sufficient. Is how the reformers came back. They said, when we say faith, we mean a very specific type of faith. We don't just mean a profession of faith. We don't just mean say you have faith and you got it. We mean genuine three-strand faith. First of all, the faith that they said has to understand, has to acknowledge and know the content of the gospel. Okay, the, the gospel has genuine data. Jesus loves me and has a tremendous plan for my life is not the gospel. You can't believe that and be saved. Throw away the silly idea that, well, we didn't get to the gospel and, and yeah, this church doesn't preach the gospel and yeah, that guy doesn't preach the gospel, but I'm sure God's saving people through him anyway. How? No, foolishness. Gospel is data. The data understood is necessary for faith. So that's step one. If you, if you don't know the gospel, you're not saved. Secondly, though, it's, it's belief. It's belief in that gospel actually being true. Because I've met all sorts of atheists, all sorts of, of people out there who, who can define the Christian truth, who, who have studied and know the biblical uh, teachings of what the gospel is, but don't believe it to be true. So that, that would be the second element, that while you know it, you also affirm it as true. Yes, I believe that Jesus saved sinners on the account of his own life, death, and resurrection. But even demons can do that. The next step was, was the language they gave in the Latin, fiducia. That, was, that became the, the, the language of, of, uh, of, of fide, of sola fide, the, the Latin word for faith. And that element really meant the, the entrusting of yourself to something. So that you don't just know it, you don't just believe it to be true, but you have actually called on the name that you said you believe in. So that you have actually entrusted your soul to him who said can save you. That's the three-pronged degree of true saving faith. And everybody who has that faith will produce good works but those good works have absolutely nothing to do with your justification. Faith is not in itself 
Spurgeon used to say, don't have faith in your faith. That fails you. That leaves you unassured. Don't try and have faith in your good works. That falls down. Have faith in Christ and Christ alone and you will see good works and assurance are plenty. So faith in Christ. I love to define that so clearly for us. But everybody who knows, everybody who knows Jesus through a true, genuine, spirit-given faith, being in the realm of the spirit now will also produce good works. And in the Christian life, we can summarize those good works as love. It's not just a feeling. It's not just a, not just a warm and fuzzy uh, tingling. It's, it's more than that. It's more than a mindset. It is love, a lifestyle of committed, sacrificial service. That's what he's compelling here. That's what he's commending, and that's what we ought to see must be coming out of our lives. That what we, that's what we should be chasing for. We should des- desire to be Christians who, who, if the Apostle Paul was to write about our church, he would say, you guys love each other. And I know that not because I went and asked you, hey, do you love each other? I could tell standing afar off. In fact, I'm hearing it from your pastor. If anybody sees the ugly side of the church, it's an honest pastor. And he is sitting in a dank uh, room in Rome with me here, and he's telling me, you guys love each other. It's evident. You work at it. He's going to call it a little bit later on in verse 8. The, wor- the, the love in the Spirit. That's beautiful. But there's this other phrase I just want to dial in on a little bit that he says, your love for all the saints. A true gospel where faith alone in Christ alone is proclaimed and is central and is on repeat every service produces and is the only thing that can produce true and genuine spiritual love. Every other... Sometimes it's simply a misunderstanding. Other times it's an outright false system and a heresy. But every other error always produces some degree of multiple-tiered caste system in the church. On the Roman Catholic uh, side of it, it's, it's it's the sacred and the common people. The one who are allowed to draw near to God and the ones who have to come through us. The ones who are allowed to dispense the grace of God and the ones who need the grace of God. The ones who can, who can take plenty of the, of the body and blood of Jesus and those others who you need to be, mate, just don't even touch it. Let us put it in your mouth. Just as little as you involved, the better. The common and the sacred. The sacred and the common. That's what Roman Catholicism does. In, in woke feminist churches that, that, that push these lines of, of privilege and, and intersectionality, they, by definition, create divided, bitter churches because you're literally being defined by how you differ from one another. Taught, in fact, from the pulpit, how to covet one another's blessings from God, which you'll call privilege. In hyper-Pentecostal, experience-based churches, that is hyper-Pentecostal, experience-based churches, you're gonna have the division of the gifted and the ungifted. The great foolish error to say there's the Christians who have the spirit and speak in tongues, and then there's the other Christians. In, yeah, I guess not gifted, not anointed, not baptized, not spiritual. Two-tiered Christianity that we must reject outright. There's other legalistic churches which will have the, the, the holy and the unholy. Now that sounds good. We should make distinctions between holy and unholy, right? Yes, uh, but not, not if you define holy by those who give in and conform to all of the pastor's preferences and traditions. 
people. They don't drink that. They don't drink that. They don't touch that. They don't wear that. They don't listen to that music. They're the real holy ones, and they're in the inner circle. And then there's all of us, us as usual, us unholy Christians. False systems or simple misunderstandings about the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ always produces this, this divisiveness, this, this, that you could never simply lump everybody together and say, all the saints, like in Colossians, the, the heresy that's going to be coming about, we'll see, directly and immediately causes divisions. The people who know Jesus, and then the people who know Jesus, plus the pantheon of gods, the angels, through the Jewish laws and through the pagan philosophy and experiences of trances. There you go, immediately two, stand, two, two classes of Christianity. But Paul is saying, I'm writing to you and your love for all of the saints. One class, one type, one body, one group of people in this household. Because where the blood of Jesus is preached as having cleansed all of us in the same measure and same degree with the same power which poured from Calvary, there is no such thing as a more holy in God's eyes group of Christians. Where we, where we proclaim and preach that, that Jesus' imputed righteousness is the only standard for justification and is given in same measure to every single one of us so that there is nobody who is more righteous in God's eyes. There is not even somebody in heaven that is more righteous in God's eyes than you. Where we proclaim that, we lose all two standards, two classes, two divisions of Christianity. We are one. There's only one type of church member, person, Christian in this church, and that is wretches saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, made good through faith alone. Amen, somebody. Any other type of error and division is born from a misunderstanding of the finished work of Jesus Christ. We are all saints. And then he says, he goes to the reason that they have this love, the reason that they have this faith, the reason that these things are there to commend he says in verse 5, is because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. This, this is the reason you have faith in Christ. This is the reason that you have love for each other is because what you have been promised by God is awaiting, is stored, and it is secure. And that, that, that's part of what he's hitting at. He's saying that there is a security in this because it's laid up for you. Not laid up by you. It's not stored somewhere in a, in a renter box somewhere on earth. Uh, that you, you, you rent in some garage or you found a, 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 a weird looking sus pit of ground that you had dug some up and threw your goods in there. It's not in the hands of even the apostles or your pastors. Your goods, your blessings, your hope is laid up for you in heaven. It is secure. But the other thing that he's saying when he says this, that you have a hope laid up for you and secured in heaven is what we call uh, a, a, the, the, the not yet part of the eschatology. When theologians look at Paul, sometimes what he's really pushing at is saying, we don't have everything Jesus gave us yet. Don't listen to the perfectionists who say we can be without sin entirely. We get that in heaven, not yet. Don't listen to the people who say that we can, have, uh, uh, we can have perfect healing at all times and we ought to have perfect wealth at all times. They're trying to steal for the now what is in fact only promised to us in the not yet. Paul will often push on that angle and say, and say it, is, it is the salvation that we have 
enormously affects this life, but it's not limited to this life. There's still much yet to come. In Romans 8, he speaks about the rebirth of the world. Yet, theologians also notice that in Paul's writing, especially here in Colossians, he's putting a big emphasis on what we already have. So that where the heretics are coming in and saying, well, don't you wish you had a little bit of this? Don't you wish you had a little bit of health and wealth? Don't you wish you had a little bit of perfection? Don't you wish you had a little bit of contact with angels? And Don't you wish you had a little bit of, 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 of experience of the heavenly places? Paul's going to say, on one hand, we have that already, ultimately and finally, accomplished and finished in Jesus Christ. There's nothing else to do. There's nothing else to receive. There's nothing else to be accomplished. It's done in Christ. On the other hand, in this verse, he's saying that anything that Christ has accomplished and you don't have yet, you get later. In other words, he's galvanizing them and making them immune to the temptations of the false teachers. He's saying on one hand, you have everything. Jesus accomplished everything. God doesn't have a single promise left to achieve through the, through the history that does not center on Jesus through the gospel in the church. There's nothing that God could offer you that he hasn't already given you. Except there is a bunch of stuff he hasn't given you fully yet, but you're going to get that in heaven. In other words, right now you have all you need and the rest that we don't have you'll get later, which is stored up for you. The heretics now, the chips are all off the table. Paul just walked in and tossed the table on its head. They don't have any cards to play with anymore. I can't offer you anything now because Jesus did it all. I can't offer you anything better that you don't have because you're going to get all of it in heaven. Paul is galvanizing them, and I pray he galvanizes you against the folly of what the false teachers throw up in their little goodie bag of goodies to try and tempt us off the good and the true gospel. That's what Paul's so thankful for. That is what Paul is praising God for as he hears about this church. I'm, I'm thanking God for what I see in your midst, this faith, this hope, this love. But he's also going to praise God and he's also going to note for us the fact that this gospel is not just powerful among the, the ex-pagans in Colossae. It's powerful and bearing fruit as it conquers the world. So look with me halfway through verse 5. Uh, hope for you laid up in heaven, full stop. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard of it. He's, he's noting for them the work of God through the gospel in the world. Now, now it's, it, it, it's, it's incumbent upon us to realize that this is, in the Spirit's working, a, a given portion of Scripture that, that confirms a previous portion of Scripture. Jesus, in his prophecy of Matthew 24, said in verse 14, speaking of the destruction of the Jerusalem, of, of Jerusalem temple, I believe, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end of the old covenant system and then the end of the temple and the Jewish nation, that's what I think he's, he's really getting at, in the way that it existed before. He's saying, then the end will come. Now, now I know you'll scratch your head and go, that wasn't a prophecy about that because, because the, the destruction of the temple already happened and, and the entire world being evangelized hadn't already happened. So, so that can't be that prophecy that Jesus is talking about or it was, and Jesus is a false prophet. 
But if we let Scripture interpret Scripture, then what we have is Jesus saying, the whole world and all nations will hear the gospel. And then we have Paul say, the gospel you heard is bearing fruit and increasing through the whole world. The language that they're using is not hyper-literal, is not, is not ultimately true in every sense. It, it's true. It didn't go to Antarctica, China, Switzerland, or to us here in God's great southern land yet. Not at that point. And yet in the way that they spoke of it, the whole world, right, the known world, the, 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 the Roman Empire, every portion of it was being conquered with souls being saved through the gospel of Jesus. Look down at verse 23 of Colossians 1. In verse 23, he uses similar language, which again, to us sounds wrong, if perfectly literal. But if we take Scripture as Scripture, we say, well, it's right in the way that he meant it. This is what he says in verse 23. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Here's Paul saying again for us, as, as Jesus says, the world will hear in all nations. Now Paul says, the whole world's heard, the whole world's heard. And in verse 23, all creation under heaven, the gospel is going forth. Now that's my argument as to what we should understand that phrase to mean. Now let's get to the point. Where is Paul? 62 AD, Paul is sitting chained to a Roman officer in house arrest in Rome. And he's writing to probably... I'm going to say one of the least significant churches that we'll ever hear read to, uh, uh, written to in the New Testament. Colossae, as we said last week, is a poor, small, insignificant town, shrinking and closing down. The, 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 the town doesn't exist anymore. They can't even find it. It's under so much dirt. It's so insignificant. He's writing to them in the year 62 AD, locked up in prison, waiting a trial, and he's writing to them, surrounded by the sharks of false teachers, the gospel does not lose its power or momentum because the power of the gospel, the power of the church's message is directly linked to the power of Jesus' blood. And Jesus' blood will not lose the power that it has to save until every last one of his chosen people is saved and safe in heaven. So he's saying, written, locked up, writing to Colossae, the gospel came to you with power, you're saved. And the gospel went to Thessalonica with me. It went to Ephesus with me. It's going to go to Spain with me before I die. That's where he ends up going. It's come to Rome with me. And there's some of Caesar's household listening to my Bible studies. It'll go to Cyprus. It went to Jerusalem. It's going everywhere. And it gathers a harvest for the bride of Jesus Christ, souls saved for the king. That's what he's saying. And if that portion isn't convincing enough, let's just look at history. We're right now, 1960 years later, from Paul in 62 to us in 2022, every continent has Christian believers upon them. Every nation, geopolitical nation in the world has some believers, has some churches amidst them worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. The ends of the earth have been reached. What is yet, yet to be done is the permeation of all people groups and languages and tongues. But Paul, we give a hearty amen to what you said, that the word and the gospel was through the whole world bearing fruit and increasing. You've got to amen that, at least in your heart, if not in your little, little Reformed Baptocostal way. I'm okay. As long as you believe the gospel has this power, as, as we study uh, old, old uh, historical revivals, friends, as you look at them, one of the lessons that we ought to glean 
is the fact that at any moment, God could restart a powerful revival in the midst of his people. At no point has there ever been a strong moment for Jesus, a, a time that God felt particularly sovereign over history. God's, God's strength does not ebb and flow like that. The, the power of the gospel does not ebb and flow like the church ebbs and flows. At any moment, he could sweep tens of thousands and millions of people into the church through the preached gospel. That is because the gospel has not lost its power. The people of God lose our belief in its power and its increasing ability. We don't pray, we don't preach, we don't do what Paul did because what God does happens through human instrumentality. It is us, it is the church that ought to be seen as the responsible ones for the gospel not going just as powerfully as we think it once did. But let us pray. And in praying, let us go. And in going, let us trust that the gospel, which bore such amazing fruit under Caesar Nero in the Roman Empire, without so much as an internet connection, can in our day pick up again that fruit-bearing, increasing momentum. And then look down at what he says <coughs> in verse, in verse uh, uh, 7 here. He says, just as, oh, sorry, at the end of verse 6, <coughs> since the day that you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The grace of God in truth, and look at what he says at the end of, uh, sorry, the beginning of verse 6. Um, uh, sorry, uh, uh, the end of verse 5. He says that this is the word of the truth, the gospel. Three definite articles. The word of the truth, the gospel. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the, the proclamation of all that God is doing through his Son. In a broad sense, Colossians will tell us that's reconciling all things in her, in earth and under heaven unto himself again through the blood of his cross. In a narrow sense, the gospel message is that you can be reconciled, you can be saved, and you can be forgiven by God by simply believing on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the gospel in both narrow and, and zoomed out terms is the word of the truth of Jesus. What the heretics are hearing as they're sitting maybe, maybe in the dark parts of the church or, or maybe they've got their, their pals who go to church in Colossae and then they'll come out and have a Sunday afternoon Bible study and, and tell them everything that Paul wrote and, and tell them everything that Epaphras was teaching today when they hear that Paul had the audacity to call a gospel preached in 52 AD the word of the truth, they're going to get angry. They're going to see because what he does is just seal off any possibility of there being anything true that contradicts what was already said in the word, the gospel. Just as we were speaking about the, the office of the apostle last week, the word of the gospel, once for all delivered, becomes a historical, all-encompassing, eternal plumb line for truth. And the heretics hate it. Who is Paul to be able to say, and that's why so many of the, the attacks of heretics come at this point, the finality and the closed canon of Scripture. Who is he to say that he had all truth finalized and finished in the gospel? Well, that's not what he said. He didn't say he knew how all the planets worked and he can tell you how a star is formed and he can, he can bust the truth out of the string theory and ace general relativity. He wasn't saying all truth. He was saying the truth. The center, the kernel, the focus of truth upon which everything else is measured. 
So the heretics get angry. They, they have to either throw out Paul or deny this portion that says that the truth can be added to in contradictory ways. He remains, the gospel of the first century remains the, the loci, the focus point, the buttress of truth. I, I don't think we get just how annoying this is in our day. In a day where discovery is increasing and information is being downloaded to your noggins through our phones at rates that is incomparable to the past, the newness of truth, the finality of truth, kind of, it loses its, its, its luster on us. But for Paul to say, we have this once for all discovered truth from God in the gospel, we lose how insulting that is. We think, yeah, sure, you know, the, the gospel's true and, and it's a good truth and, and we should always hold to that truth, but, but there's all these new truths. But, but when you really push it down, what the, what the insult is to our elites, what the insult was to the, to the heretics of the first century and every other century, what the insult is, is that no one is free to define their own truth. We are commanded to discover new truths and then submit everything we think we know to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the part that really ticks off our elites. That's the part that really ticks off the, the philosophers and the psychotherapists and the, the, the spiritualists and the kings and the Caesars and the Führers and the prime ministers and all, and the scientists. They have to submit everything they know to 12 Palestinian dudes who died 2,000 years ago. They're getting fact-checked by guys who don't know what the internet is. I don't know if you get as ticked off as I do when I get fact-checked on Facebook. I'll share something I know to be true. Sometimes the algorithm just misreads it. And I just say something that happened to me. Go, this has been checked by independent fact-checkers to not be true. Like, what are you talking about? It happened to me. I, that is absolutely true. And I get so annoyed that some punk, some nerd who works for Snopes somewhere has the audacity to come anonymously onto my Facebook post and tell everybody that looks at me, this guy's probably wrong, the experts say so. It, it just, it grinds my gears, okay? Now imagine you believe yourself to be in the generation of the greatest revelation of truth in the world, our generation. The greatest globalist connection ever. The greatest sharing of information. The greatest power to discover new things in distant galaxies and in micro uh, subatomic particles and everything in between. You think you are the smartest group of elites in the smartest generation ever and then this annoying group of Christians keep on fact-checking you with dead Palestinian fisher boys named Paul and Peter and James and John, the followers of Jesus. The world must in every truth that they believe, submit it to the truth, the word of the truth, which comes to us ultimately through the gospel. So I don't care however many hundreds of thousands of people the peer-reviewed study says that they studied and how many experts agree when they tell you that the, the religious dogma coming through the Bible is actually traumatic and the, and the source of sin and without religion we're able, we're actually good people by nature, you say fact checked by the Jewish apostles that you hate so much the people who delivered the word of truth 
we're sinful by nature. When they say that human nature is different or that sin is different or that God is different or that salvation doesn't work that way or now we know what happens after or now we know where we came from and look at our infinite resources about, about where we're getting this truth from, we fact check them on dead guys from 2,000 years ago and it frustrates them. But this is, the, this is the confidence that I want us to have and that Paul would demand that we have on the word of the truth, the gospel. And if you think, well, how does, I still don't see how any of that is relevant to the gospel. I mean, isn't the gospel just that we get saved by believing in Jesus? What does that have to do with literally the rest of life's discoveries? Friends, like the Colossians, you don't understand the statement that all of the fullness of knowledge and wisdom is in Jesus Christ. So dive into that, study that, pray for understanding of that until the statement, nothing can be true until it bends its knee to the Lord Jesus, makes sense to us. But look now at what he calls it also. We read it before, we'll read it one last time as we close. He calls it at the end of verse 6, the grace of God in truth, which you heard. He puts it past tense because they're hearing new stuff and they will hear new stuff. And he says, nope. What I told to Epaphras and he passed on to you back in 52 AD, that's it. That's the truth. It doesn't need to be updated. Here's something else. What you heard past tense is the gospel, but he calls it the grace of God in truth. There is a lot of versions of the grace of God which require you to add your works to get it. There is the grace of God which, which actually denies and throws out the law. There's actually no such thing as guilt not the grace of God in truth. There's, there's the grace of God out there that, that enables you to activate the divine spark and, and activate and, and enter into and partake in the divine manifestations. That's not the grace of God in truth. There's grace of God out there that just says there's no such thing as judgment, no hell, God is love. We all come to God eventually through him. Love wins. They're going to hell. That's not the grace of God in truth. Friends, the grace of God in truth is where God's compassion and mercy meet both with his truth and his unwavering standards of justice. Where the, where the fullness of God's law was satisfied because a full life was given by Jesus obeying God's law. Where the full punishment of the law was, was received, where the full wrath of God was satisfied, where the full anger of God in his, in his fury against criminals was, was totally expiated because of the death of Jesus Christ. Where, where the mercy and the, and the eternal life of God was put on offer because Jesus came back to life and assures that we will have a resurrection like his. In the exaltation of Jesus to the throne so that we now have a king that is worthy of worship and that welcomes us come. A king who is both powerful and fearful and terrible, yet overflowing in steadfast love and mercy. This, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension and reign of Jesus Christ that Paul preaches, that is the grace of God in truth, not in error. That is the grace of God that saves, not the, not the grace of God that confuses and condemns. This is the gospel that Paul lived for, that he says that he is a minister for, that he says Epaphras has been a faithful minister on your behalf for, but what, what Paul could do was make it known to you. Look at verse, look at verse uh, 6. Towards the end, he says, uh, go from the beginning, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and, fruit and increasing, as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul, Paul can make sure they hear the grace of God in truth. 
Epaphras can make sure they hear the grace of God and truth. I can make sure that every sermon we hold here, every service that is here, we will make known the grace of God in truth. But none of us, no minister, no pastor, no parent, no friend can ever make you to understand the grace of God in truth. That is the work of the Holy Spirit alone. So let me ask you, not, not just as we consider what saving faith is, not just do you, do you know how to define the grace of God, not just have you heard definitions of, do you, do you know verses about the grace of God? Do you know what the gospel is? That's not what I'm asking. I'm not even asking you if you believe it to be true that there'll be sinners in heaven saved by the blood of Jesus. I'm asking you, have you entrusted yourself to the loving Savior who died for you? Have you entrusted your sin to Him who can discharge it all and forgive you? Have you given yourself and bent your knee to the one who demands that you have faith in Him? Have, has the grace of God become an understanding in your own soul? Friends, I pray that you would tonight, if you have not already, repent of your sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, because only in His gospel is the grace of God truly manifested. Let's pray. Father God, like Paul, we thank you and we praise you for all of the good that was happening in the Colossian church. And in as much, Lord God, as we can look at that and, and see those good things also happening in our midst, and we give you thanks. We give you praise because it is, it, is a, it is a glorious thing to be in a body of believers that manifest faith in Jesus and love to the saints. And we give all glory and honor to you. We pray also, Lord God, that you would, that you would increase our understanding of the gospel and, and, and of these extraordinary statements that Paul makes, these final statements, these, these, these enormous statements about Jesus and the gospel being the full encapsulation of truth and knowledge and wisdom and salvation and reconciliation. I pray, Lord God, that you would give us an addiction to know more and more about Jesus. You would give us an overflowing zeal to understand deeper and deeper the things of the gospel so that we might be galvanized against false teaching so that we might be immune to the errors that take so many astray that we would be those those firm and fast believers in a sound and solid church that is not tossed to and fro by every new wind and wave of doctrine lord god galvanize us by your truth and i pray also lord god that the grace that you have poured out through jesus and now made fully available the the flowing streams the free eternal bread of life, would you please, Lord God, enable the unbelievers in our midst to partake, to come without money, to come without anything to offer and drink of that eternal life water, to, to eat of that eternal life bread that is in the gospel of Jesus. Please bring them to new life, add them to our number so that we might be that church that is continually growing and bearing fruit and increasing. Father God, we thank you and pray all these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.